together. So let us hear God's word from Luke 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. Well, as we begin here today, we come, obviously, to a very familiar passage to us. And as I have said on other occasions, uh, sometimes it's the most familiar passages to us that we understand, in some ways, the least, or at least not as much as we think we do. <laughs> And we tend to have things imported into our understanding from either hymns that we sing or stories or uh, movies or books that we read or something. And obviously with this one, uh, we've been bombarded with all kinds of things over the years. Um, And uh, whether it's major scenes along the road or whatever it is. Um, So... With that in mind, let's again focus on what the text is telling us and try to weed through some of the things that we think we understand that maybe we don't or maybe we at least need to be more careful about in our thinking. Now, of course, uh, here for our uh, Christmas messages over the last few years, we've been looking at Luke's account. And uh, we started, of course, with the announcement of John the Baptist and the angel coming to Zacharias there in the temple. Uh, and then we looked at the angel coming to Mary, announcing to Mary that she would uh, give birth to the Messiah. And then we saw the response of Mary as she came to Elizabeth, and we call it the Magnificat, as she magnifies the Lord. And then John is born, and Zacharias responds and can now speak, and he gives this word of blessing uh, at the end of Luke 1. Well, we come now uh, to verses 1 to 7, the actual account of the birth of Christ. And, of course, last night we read from Matthew's account, which focuses on Joseph. And here, Joseph is mentioned, of course, but the the, uh, broader point here in Luke is, of course, this emphasis on Mary. All right, now, in both of them, there's very little description of the birth itself. And so, again, as we get focused on all these sentimental things about the birth of this cute little baby in a manger, uh, let's make sure we're focusing on the text. Now, you recall that Mark doesn't say anything about the birth of Christ, and in one sense, neither does John. But as we read a moment ago, uh, John does say a few things. Uh, Most notably, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But obviously, that's very different than what we see in Matthew and uh, here in Luke. All right, well, with this in mind, uh, let's uh, look at verses 1 and 2 here first. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. All right, now first of all, note it says, it came to pass in those days. Now that's day of the Lord language. That's something that would get us to sit up and take notice. This isn't just uh, some historical reference to the leaders and this census and so on. It, it's, it's far more than that. The day of the Lord is here, Luke is saying. The day of the Lord has finally come. But as we see in the Gospels, it's not quite exactly as the people expected. But certainly we see the coming of the Messiah. All right, now, um, let's try to address briefly some of this historical reference. Uh, As I've said on other occasions, um, expository preaching is sometimes called grammatical historical exegesis. And of course, in the Psalms, we've been focusing on grammar, and you've told me recently not quite so much of that, and so I've tried to do better with that. Uh, But there's the historical aspect of it, too. We need to understand the historical context as much as we can. And so let me say a few things here in this way. Um, The first thing to say is that if you read any commentary on this, they're going to say, this is one of the most difficult passages and yada, yada, yada. Okay. Maybe we can say it is one of the most debated, but I'm not sure it's all that difficult. Uh, The problem is simply this. There is no reference outside of the scriptures to this worldwide census at this time. There was one that we found that happened in 6 AD with Augustus and Quirinius. But remember, Jesus was born before Herod died, and Herod died about 4 B.C., And so he was born roughly 5 or even 6 B.C. And so there's no reference to a census at this time. That's the thing. And so you have about 10 to 12 years off is is the way the argument goes. So how do we handle this? Well, some, of course, will say, well, Luke had it all wrong. And so we don't need to believe the Bible and so on and so forth. Well, we certainly don't need to go down that path. Others, and I would agree with this, would say, well, Luke is right. We just don't have the archaeological and historical evidence to say for sure how it lines up with some of these historical figures. At some point, we probably will find something. We just haven't yet. In fact, maybe something has been found in the last couple years, and I haven't heard about it yet. But certainly, to this point, we have not found anything. But what we do have is that this man was... Uh, had the name Octavian, and he started ruling in 31 B.C. until 14 A.D. The Senate gave him the name Augustus, which means exalted one. And as the exalted one, he thought it would be a great idea to get rid of the Republic and replace it with the galactic, I mean, uh, empire. (laughs) So anyway, um, he expanded it and... um, did some good things, most notably the peace of Rome, with roads and architecture and literature. There were some good things. Um, And he started taking various censuses. In fact, uh, he wanted a census of the whole Roman Empire, which, of course, is quite vast, or was. In fact, it took 40 years to complete, and from what we understand, he started it around 10 B.C., So maybe that's what Luke has in mind when he says what he says. 
Um, <clears throat> he re- reorganized many things based on this census, and uh, most notably, it led to higher taxes, and it led to military service, and so on and so forth. All right, now as for Quirinius, there's some debate on this, as you might expect. We know he started ruling in 6 AD, but there is some suggestion that he may have had two stints of ruling, one about the time Jesus was born, and maybe that's what Luke has in mind. Well, whatever the case, um, this kind of thing, as you might expect, led to some people being rather upset. In fact, there were riots over a census like this. And so um, Luke doesn't mention any of those things. He just says, here is the decree. And uh, obviously that impacted here where Christ was born. All right. Um, I, I'm not going to get into all the, the, the nuances there, but the, there are these questions and so on. But the point is clear that this uh, census was put into place for taxation purposes and for military reasons. So as we come then to verse 3, it says, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, um, we just think, well, okay, I live in Harrisville, or I live in Edmonton, or Grove City, or whatever, and, and we're registered there. Or for us, we live in the state of Pennsylvania, and maybe the county or township or something to that effect. Um, for Rome, it was similar, but when it came to the Israelites, the, the Romans allowed Israel to return to their ancestral roots, and so whatever tribe they were from, whatever uh, location they had as a tribal allotment, they, uh, the Romans allowed Israel to go back to those places and register there. Obviously, you have the diaspora, people being scattered, in fact, even all over the Roman Empire, um, and so they permitted some of those things to take place if they so chose. Another somewhat unique thing in all this is that at least in Syria, right, Quirinius is governing Syria, at least in this area, they also would have women register, not just the men. And so, hence, we're going to see this reference to Mary. So, everybody goes, no exceptions, okay? They come knocking at your door if you forget to fill it out, you know, this kind of thing. Um, All right, so let's look then at verse (laughs) 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. All right. Well, we know the story here, of course. Um, Joseph returns to Bethlehem, where he was from. Presumably, Mary was too, um, uh, originally with her extended family and so on. Now, from Nazareth to Bethlehem was approximately 90 miles. So that's kind of like us going from here to Erie or to Cleveland or maybe Washington, PA, or something to that effect. Okay, roughly 90 miles. Now, if they went around Syria, it would have been a little bit farther And, of course, with a pregnant woman, uh, they didn't do it in three or four or five days, most likely. Probably they took ten days or something to that effect. Now, one more thing to mention in this sense. There is some archaeological evidence that we have uh, discovered that 
would suggest that there were others from Bethlehem that settled in Nazareth, not just Joseph and Mary, but uh, even others. So if that's true, then maybe Joseph and Mary did not travel alone. So, again, let's, let's kind of weed out some of our expectations and so on and so forth here. You often see Mary and Joseph, you know, on a donkey. I didn't say anything about a donkey here. But anyway, Mary's riding on a donkey, we're told, and, and they're all by themselves. Well, that may be true, but it may be that they were with others. And so, just again, we need to hold that idea somewhat loosely uh, in our minds. All right, well, they come to um, the city of David. Obviously, we see this descendant of David, very significant in light of the promises. And uh, we'll look at that here in just a moment. All right, so then in verse 5, it says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. All right, so again, it is very likely that Mary was registering her own name, not just uh, being with her husband, Um, but... uh, Uh, We don't know that for sure. But certainly it says they are betrothed. And I use the term husband quite specifically because betrothal was considered to be more significant, more binding than what we would think of with an engagement today. They were not fully married yet, but nevertheless, it was more binding than what we would have. So today we could be engaged and call off an engagement and in one sense It's just a decision that is made, and you move on. Uh, It doesn't mean it's easy, of course, but there's no legal binding or or anything like that. But to be betrothed would be almost like marriage. You might say halfway in between engagement and marriage, and um, they would be considered um, um, spouses. They would sometimes even live together. Think of how extended families would all live together and so forth. And so sometimes they did that. Certainly they did not cohabitate in the same room and such yet. They didn't consummate the marriage uh, until they were fully married. And then they had to have a full divorce in order to break a betrothal. So you might say all the rights and privileges of marriage were part of a betrothal, except for they had no sexual relations. Now, clearly, this is important. Now, let's turn back to Matthew here in chapter 1, because Matthew mentions it here, too. In Matthew 1, as we read last night in verse 18, um, it says there, After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, it continues here with the angel coming to Joseph and so on. And then notice also in verse 25, it says, He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. So it's very specifically mentioned here by Matthew and now here by Luke that they were betrothed, but they hadn't come together yet. They're not fully married yet. Now, why is this important? Well, obviously, both Matthew and Luke are trying to say Jesus was no bastard child. Mary was not some harlot or something to that effect. Yes, that's part of what they're saying. But even more so, they are communicating to us by saying that they are betrothed 
and that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, they are indicating that Jesus was no regular man. He is, as we say, the God-man, the incarnation, God coming to be with earth, not by God uh, having relations with a woman, no, but by the Spirit enabling her to become pregnant. And if this did not happen, if Jesus were just a regular guy born of Mary and Joseph, then he would have had the nature of Adam, the fallen nature of Adam. And he then could not be our Savior. And so by having a, a human in Mary to, to have his uh, human nature, and then to have the Spirit enable her to become pregnant, the divine nature of Christ. Both of these then come together. So he had a human nature, a divine nature, the God-man, but in his human nature, it was sinless. He did not have the inheritance of Adam the way the rest of us have. Without this, he could not save us. He is the second Adam. And so this mention here, seemingly... Just a passing mention, right? His betrothed wife, who is with child, you know, and he keeps going. Um, it's actually quite significant. And again, without this, uh, he would not be fit to save us. So this is why, as we celebrate the birth of our Lord, we must be very intentional about remembering that he was born without sin. Not just born as cute little baby, it's not just all babies are innocent or something like that. No, he was born without sin to a woman who was not with a man, but with the Holy Spirit. So a few words uh, in that way. Let's then <clears throat> look at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So how long were they there? Again, what you often see in you know, a movie or you know, some Christmas play or something like that is that it had happened maybe the day they arrived or the next day or something like that, and that's possible. But they may have been there for days or even weeks, possibly even a few months. Okay? If you look down at uh, <clears throat> verse 21, it says that on the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised in the synagogue there in Bethlehem is the assumption. In verse 22, it says the days of her purification, right? They go to Jerusalem. That would have been 40 days later, okay? And then, of course, you see Simeon and Anna and such. And then if you look at verse 39, all right, they go back to Nazareth. But as we know in Matthew that some other things happened in between that, okay? Yes, they have this purification and so on, but at some point, the wise men come. And then they go to Egypt before they come back to Nazareth. Now, um, again, if you look at a nativity scene or something, the wise men usually are there right by the shepherds and so on. But uh, the wise men came possibly, some will say, as much as two years later. I think that's probably too long. But it is possible that they came a year later. And so um, the point is, that Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem for a while, possibly even over a year, before they go to Egypt, and then they go back to Nazareth. Okay. So, how long were they there on the front end? We don't know, but they were there for uh, several months, um, and maybe even over a year. 
All right, now, um, as we look then at verse 7, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. <coughs> for them in the inn. <coughs> All right, well, here we come to it. And it's just briefly mentioned. Right? She gave birth. And she brought forth her firstborn son. It's kind of like the crucifixion. It's just, you know, if you blink, you miss it in the text. It's just barely mentioned, but here it is. She brought forth her firstborn son. Now, note that term there, firstborn son. What does that suggest? She had more than one. <laughs> okay. uh, the Catholic view, I, I think, has uh, a, a great difficulty here trying to do gymnastics around this word. It's just very straightforward. She had a firstborn son. Okay. It says the same thing in Matthew. We know she had four other sons and at least two daughters. So... Jesus was not her only child. Then it says that they wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now, this was very common. It wasn't just the poor. Sometimes you hear that. uh, But it was very common to use strips of cloths to wrap newborn babies at that time. It would keep them warm, obviously. It would protect them. And uh, after being all cooped up in the womb, they thought it was important to straighten their limbs. So they would wrap them with their arms and legs very straight and so forth. All right, now notice what's not here in the verse. It does not say anything about a midwife. So what does that mean? Should we go with what we typically see in manger scenes? There are no midwives in manger scenes. Did they do this all by themselves? Or was there a midwife there? Should we assume that? We don't know. You would assume there would have been. But, again, it doesn't say. Just because it doesn't say doesn't mean there was one or there wasn't one. So, again, just uh, let's be careful on our, our traditions here. All right, and then it says, <clears throat> there was no room in the inn, and so that's why they put Jesus in the manger. The fact that this is a manger suggests there are animals there. It doesn't say there are animals there we can, I think, fairly assume there were animals there because of the feed trough. Um, But again, it doesn't say there were. Um, There is no description of the mean innkeeper. There's no description of a stable either. It just says they laid him in a manger. That's all it says. All right, now, let's talk about the inn for a moment. That... is, I would say, a rather unfortunate translation. And I think the reason why it's been translated this way is because somewhere way back when it was and tradition kept it going. The word actually means guest room. It does not mean inn. If you look at Mark 14, verse 14, or Luke 22, verse 11, it's the word for the upper room where Jesus and his apostles had the Last Supper. The point is, there was no room in the guest rooms of Bethlehem. That's the point. It's not the word for inn. The word for inn is used in Luke 10, for example, when the good Samaritan helped the guy that was beat up. He took him to an inn and said to the innkeeper, right, take care of him and such. Uh, That's the word for inn. This isn't. This is a different word. 
So, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, that means we should be careful about our traditions and what we think about, of course. Um, but what does that suggest about Joseph's extended family? Does that mean that Joseph still had extended family there and they had no room for him? Does that mean that all of his extended family had moved to Nazareth or somewhere else? Um, I, I don't know, but all the guest rooms were full. So <clears throat> say there were 100 homes in Bethlehem, how many had guest rooms? Not everybody did, but um, they were all full, presumably because of this census and so forth. Okay. <clears throat> now, some have suggested that the reason why there was no room is because Joseph and Mary were being shunned. Maybe that's true. Okay. Again, it looks like she's been unfaithful to Joseph or they were premature in their relations or whatever. Um, but it does suggest, uh, or at least gives us the possibility, that they were being shunned, and that's why there was no room. But again, we cannot assume that that's definitively the case. It may just be there was no vacancy. It's that simple. Now, back to this word for manger. What does this suggest to us? Well, obviously it suggests that there could have been animals, um, and, and so on. It, there could have been a stable out on the hillside. There could have been a barn. Um, but there also could have been a cave where the animals were, were stabled. It also could mean that they stayed in someone's house. Now, obviously, we know what a barn is. We know what a stable is and so forth, right? Okay. Now, in, in regard to the issue of the cave, as early as origin and Justin Martyr, and even a non-Christian source in the second century, that early in church tradition, we have indication that Jesus was actually born in a cave. That's where the animals were housed at this particular um, person's property or wherever it was exactly they stayed. Okay? Um, and so that is a possibility. Some people who had property with caves, this is what they did. Obviously, the animals would be cooler in there. Um, and even in the winter, it's probably a little bit warmer in there. So uh, to have a cave and to have Jesus being born in a cave is very much a possibility. So again, let's not just get all set on our stable and manger scenes and such that we, we typically have. All right, but, you know, there's also another possibility. <clears throat> and... Um, some people are saying this is maybe more likely. Poor families couldn't necessarily afford a barn or a stable or even land that had caves. And so what was often the case with poor families is they more or less just attached a barn to their house. Now, obviously, it wasn't nearly as elaborate. But think of our house, for example. Hey, we have the main part of the house with the kitchen and dining room and living room and so forth, right? It's, it's up a little bit, a couple steps. And then <clears throat> uh, we have what used to be the garage, which now has been enclosed, and we call it the mudroom and so forth. And it's down a couple steps. It's got a cement floor and all that sort of thing. Well, imagine something like that here in Bethlehem. You have someone who has a house that's elevated a little bit, and then down lower, that's where they had their animals. Was actually in the house, 
but you know there are a few steps there so you don't have you know cows showing up on your living room couch or something you know you, they just kept them over there well it's possible that that's where Jesus was born in a place like that again the text does not say very much <laughs> so we we can't just set our minds on a particular idea whatever it was obviously Jesus was born and that's the most important thing but as we're trying to decipher these things and again especially to to weed through all the traditions and sentimental things that we have in our culture uh, just recognize that it may be very different than what we have thought Um, maybe not but it's possible All right, now, another thing to address here briefly in terms of our expectations. When did this take place? Obviously, we're here today on December 25th, because that's when we celebrate Christmas. But was Jesus actually born on December 25th? Not likely. Let's turn to Luke 1, and in verse 26, Luke gives us a clue. In Luke 1, verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and so forth, right? Note the betrothal language again. So in the sixth month, it says. All right, now, the question now is, which calendar is Luke using? They used two different ones. You had the original religious sacred calendar. Okay, the one you see all the way back to Exodus and so forth. And if that's the one that Luke is using, then that means that Gabriel came to Mary in roughly late August or early September. So notice, where does that put the birth of Christ? Okay, that puts you late May, early June. Let's just say June 1st for, for ease here. Okay. So... If it's the sacred calendar, then Jesus was born in late spring, early summer. Now, if Luke is using the civil calendar or the uh, secular calendar, which some have argued that is likely the case, and, and if that's true, then the sixth month would be late February, early March. So do your nine months, right? Now you're late November, early December. Again, just for ease, you think roughly December 1st, give or take a week or so. So, by the 4th century, both churches, the Western Church and the Eastern Church, started celebrating the birth of Christ during the winter. In the West, it was December 25th. In the East, it was January 6th. And we still do that. Okay? still celebrate. So if you were to go over to a Greek Orthodox church, <clears throat> they're probably not celebrating Christmas today. Okay, they're going to do it in a couple weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, <clears throat> my point is this. Let's make sure that traditions do not influence our theology. Okay? Jesus was born either in early summer, late spring, or late fall, early winter. We don't know exactly which one. 
okay? But what is important is that we celebrate that Jesus was born. Let's not get so wrapped up on the day that we actually are adding to the scriptures here. All right. Well, let's turn here a moment to Micah and chapter 5. As we're trying to weed through these questions and these traditions and so forth, let's not miss the point. In Micah 5 and in verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting All right, here we see the promise that the Messiah, the son of David, would be born in David's city, in Bethlehem. So as we come here to Luke chapter 2, and even in Matthew chapter 2, we see that God kept this. This promise is fulfilled. Jesus was born in David's city. In Bethlehem. And you might recall that Bethlehem means house of bread. So the bread of life is born in the house of bread. Later, of course, he dies in David's city in Zion and Jerusalem. The son of David is born in David's city, dies in David's city. He is the descendant of David. Jesus fulfills God's word. God keeps his promises. Again, it is so common. Don't, don't we see this in our culture today? I mean, how, how many times do you see in our culture a reference to the birth of Christ? Hey, Anna was commenting, you know, if you drive through the park, there's only one, one nativity scene. Hey, but everything else is about Santa Claus or big joy or, you know, whatever. Right? We get distracted. Well, let's make sure we are not being distracted by our traditions Because the main point is, God has kept his promises. That's the whole point. That's why we're here today. God has kept his promises to us, his people. The promises he first gave all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 15. And the many times we see God promising something over the centuries since then. God has kept his word. God has kept his promises. Jesus has come as the son of David, born in David's city, later to die in David's city. And so God then sovereignly rules over all of history. God prompts this pagan king, Caesar. This pagan ruler, Quirinius, prompts them to pass these ungodly laws here, trying to raise taxes and, and, and uh, encourage military service and all this sort of thing. And in this ungodliness, God's word is fulfilled. Joseph and Mary are forced to go to Bethlehem. But in that, God's word is, is, is kept. In no way does this justify ungodly rule, <laughs> but it does point to the greatness of our God, being able to overcome, if you will, the Joe Bidens of the world, and so on and so forth, to do his purposes. All right. 
Now, the other key point that we see in all of this, not only do we need to see God's sovereignty and his promises being kept, but we see here then that God has become man. But notice, there's very little fanfare. Yes, the angels come and sing, but who saw the angels? Okay. Just a few men out in the field. Jesus is born here. God became man with hardly any description. Verse 7, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 1, verse 25. There's no pomp and circumstance, no parades or fireworks, no media setting up on the hillside showing everything. Okay. The angels came, yes. But again, hardly anybody saw them. We have tried for 2,000 years to explain the incomprehensible. How could God become man? But as we try to wrestle with that and try to understand it, don't miss, can you say, the, the, the method and the message in terms of how God did this. Jesus is not born in a palace. He's born and laid in a manger, likely meaning there are animals around. He came to poor people. Okay? He's not born in his own house. There's no hospital, possibly no midwife. Maybe they were all alone. We don't know. But compared to Caesar, compared to Quirinius, compared to Herod even, they seem to be a far greater consequence. But that's not the way God works. Okay? There's no pretense. There's no grandeur. There's humility. There's simplicity. There's no creature comforts here. Compare that even to John the Baptist. Even he, his birth, was announced in the temple. Everybody heard that. They were there. Okay? And the word spread, of course. Mary, presumably, they're all by themselves. And even when the angel came to her. It seems like she was all by herself. She tells Elizabeth, of course, and a few others. John is born, and, and everybody's right there waiting. And they're filled with joy. There are miracles there. Again, was anybody with Mary and Joseph? Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're a priestly family. Joseph is a descendant of David. But he seems just to be a regular guy. Okay. And his mother seems to be an apparent whore. Appearances can be deceiving. But in this obscure, hey, backwoods kind of way, God became man. And this is really God's way. God does things in the course of history using people that are supposedly not all that important. God typically works quietly. Oh, yes, yes, there's, you know, there, there's the shaking of Mount Sinai, there's the crossing of the Red Sea. Yes, those things do happen. But most of the time, God does not work that way. And he worked in this humble, weak kind of way here through the birth of his son. And through the, through the commonness of his birth, and even the commonness of his life to some degree. Now, the contrast 
of that with the greatness of who Christ really is. But isn't this such an encouragement? Okay. If this is the way he was born, okay, it's no surprise that he ministered in this way to the average person. And that, you know, he actually cares for you and me. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Hardly anybody knows who we are. We're not splashed across the news and we don't have people you know, erecting monuments because we caught a football. Hey, we're just common people. But that's the way God works. And so as we remember the birth of Christ here this morning, let us remember the commonness of it in the midst of how great it was and how that points to how much God really cares for the common person, for people like us. So, <clears throat> a few thoughts here for us this morning in this very familiar passage. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the fulfillment of your word. We thank you that we can celebrate the birth of Christ here today, not because it's tradition and not because it's uh, something sentimental, but because you have kept your word, you have kept your promises. And we rejoice in this. We praise you for this. We lift up your name. And we praise you, Lord, that you have sent forth your son not to be born in a palace, not to uh, exist with kings and, and high peoples, but you have sent your son to, to be among the average, the common people like us. And for this, Lord, we are grateful and we, we are thankful that you have sent forth your son, God becoming man, something beyond our capacity to understand. And yet, the message is clear nonetheless, that you came to be with us, to bring us back to yourself, that we might be at peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for this, Lord. We thank you that Christ came not just as a baby, but as we celebrated last night, lived a life of perfection, then died in atoning death, rose again, and sits at your right hand, ruling as the Son of David forever in glory, and will come again someday to bring us back in all of its fullness to the heavenly promised land. And Lord, we, we yearn for that day. And uh, in the meantime, strengthen us, enable us to praise you, to, to focus on your word, and uh, that you then would be honored here today uh, in our worship. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.